This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Streetwise Podcast, the podcast extension of The Pitch from Kansas City. I am your host and editor-in-chief of The Pitch, Mr. Brock Wilbur. How is everyone doing out there? Spring has sprung, and I'll tell you how I know, because a terrible tragedy has befallen our house today. I was on a Zoom meeting today with some colleagues talking about business, and then my wife made a sound as if she'd been stabbed. I walked into the room, but tried not to get into the shot, and... Uh, in a terrified face, was sort of like, when you're done, let me know. And I was like, okay, well, that's the sign to get off the Zoom call. Nothing is as important as whatever is trying to destroy my wife. Uh, so I jumped off and I was like, hey, what's up? And she's like, well, took the dog into the backyard. It, it is our rescue dog. It is springtime. We have never had a dog in springtime. And our backyard does indeed have some bunny rabbits. Uh, normally, he sees the bunnies in the morning. He's not that bright. He sort of looks at them until they start running and then chases them. And by then they're already through the gate or under the porch or whatever hiding place they've got. They've He's never been close. He's too stupid to actually hunt. But today he did find a little hutch of baby bunnies while he was in the backyard. Um, and he got one of them real good. Uh, so my wife lost her mind and tried to help save it and that didn't happen so she's back inside really shaken by what she had seen very upset about this thing which also our neighbor has let it be known previously that their dog exists to eliminate the bunnies that try to eat all of their vegetation i i understand that you can either grow things or have bunnies and probably not both and certainly not with a dog. So here we are starting on some circle of life stuff that uh, just unprepared to have happen in the middle of the day. Um, found the other baby bunnies and moved them. Uh, dogs not going back out until, uh, until their parent comes to take care of them and move them somewhere else. They're, uh, they're pretty good. Um, <laughs> but then in the process of all of this, our, uh, our older cat, Kimball, uh, who is just a, a lunatic of a creature, but has never once, never once, expressed any interest in leaving the house um managed to notice that in the hubbub the back door was open and just decided to let herself out uh so we couldn't find her for a while and then my wife found her in the backyard where with the entire backyard of places to go to the place that she'd chosen to go to was to the the what was left of of the baby bunny and just sit there staring at it um so when my wife said Kimball's name, Kimball came running back into the house. I've never seen Kimball respond to her name, but I, I think she took on more than she's ever taken. She's never left the house. She's never been outside of the house, really, except to go to the vet. She's never been in the backyard. But she spends all of her days sitting on various couches and things, looking out the window. And I imagine that in her head, she just always thought that that was like a painting or a, or a computer game, and just like in the in the Matrix, she just got red-pilled. She went outside, she saw that there is, in fact, a world out there, and the first thing that she saw was death. Uh, so now our, our green-pilled daughter uh, from the big green outdoors world 
uh, has just been sitting there on this couch all day, uh, alternating between looking out the window and looking at us with these these pupils that are just dilated, like she's seen the fabric of the universe. So it has been a complicated day for everyone here at the start of bunny season. Uh, everyone either has a bloodlust or has been crying or uh, has had their consciousness expanded like they just did mushrooms for the first time. So I'm just having a fun, wacky time and glad to be here with you. We have a fabulous episode coming up today. Uh, we, we've got a lot going on. Uh, a, a local musician slash filmmaker, Remy, is coming to join us for the interview. Uh, we have Nick's Basics Music Corner, as per always. But first of all, i uh, got to tell you about Alibi, a true crime bar. Now, this is a place that's popping up at uh, 4118 Pennsylvania Avenue, KCMO, uh, inside the Firefly Lounge. It'll be there Thursdays through Sundays, 7 p.m. through 1.30 a.m. for the entire month of May. It is a true crime-themed pop-up bar. So a pop-up bar with a theme. Uh, you know these guys. They've done some other really cool-themed uh, pop-up stuff in the past. And so uh, a true crime bar, absolutely, absolutely in for it. I, I want a jukebox that plays my favorite murderer in the corner. Uh, I, I want forensic files on all the TVs. I, I know that they uh, go out for actually doing this sort of stuff right. So um, I know that there are a bunch of themed cocktails built around this. Uh, there, there are sort of talking points uh, that you, you're left with uh, around the room. Like, do you want to get together with some people and share your theories about uh, Dahmer's psyche? Uh, without your family wondering if you're the psychopath. Well, yeah, I mean, I, my wife is the one that listens to true crime all day, so I think she'd just be happy if I brought up Dahmer theories. But, you know, su such as a white woman in her 30s that has access to podcasts, th that is a call out to everyone I work with and myself. Um, there are themed cocktails that will delight the palate and the pun maker in you uh, using ingredients from businesses that are all local, like Broadway Cafe and Donutology. Anyone incorporating donuts uh, into your cocktail, like I'm already in for. Uh, there's a bunch of other cool stuff that's happening here. And uh, as as a as an interesting aside, uh, doing a thing that most people in the true crime world don't do, um, this bar is going out of its way to acknowledge that, like, yeah, um, we've we've made true crime fun, but there are also uh, actual human beings that are victims of of a lot of these things, and uh, that. Uh, some of this uh, wacky, disconnected joy that one gets from doing a true crime as a fandom still has real-world consequences. So uh, they are doing fundraisers uh, at the pop-up to help local victims' aids group, uh, which uh, I I think is great. Like, <laughs> yeah, if if you're gonna have a fun, wacky time talking about Jack the Ripper, let's not ignore that. Um, just a tremendous number of homicides in this city just every year, and uh, you know. If you can, if we can give back in the process of uh, drinking a donut uh, cocktail, hey, it's something. Every little bit helps, uh, and excited to go check it out. Uh, first up today, we have a reading of an article from our most recent magazine. Uh, it is by Jim Nimmo, uh, and it is about the local cannabis industry. Uh, our friend J Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment is going to read it for you now. Jason, take it away. Yes, we cannabis. Missouri-made medical marijuana moves Metro. Words and photos by Jim Nimmo. So you want to sell weed legally in Missouri? The good news is in November of 2018, Missouri voters overwhelmingly passed a constitutional amendment legalizing the sale of medical marijuana in the state. 
The bad news is that the state legislature limited the number of licenses granted to dispensaries and cultivation operations statewide. Now, all those licenses are gone. Until one of these currently licensed operations goes out of business, decides to sell, or state regulations change, you are out of luck. But Overland Park native Nate Ruby and his mother, Carolyn Richmond, weren't. Ruby is the 26-year-old head of OXG LLC, or Onyx 7, an umbrella company that includes five medical marijuana dispensaries under From the Earth. This cultivation operation grows and distributes boutique craft cannabis products under the name Illicit and plans for skincare products and edibles under the name Just Be. His journey into the world of the cannabis industry started at the early age of 13 when his mom, Carolyn Richards, busted him. Richards received, by accident, a text from one of Ruby's friends asking Ruby if he had any skateboards to sell, suspicious considering Ruby didn't skate. So she grounded him for a month, which led Ruby to spend his time in the library, researching the then-fledgling medical marijuana industry. Years later, after a law degree from UMKC and years planning a marijuana business, Ruby and his mother teamed up to sell weed. Richards brought her experience of owning and managing retail shops to Ruby's dispensaries. They call me Marijuana Mama, Richards says during a recent interview in their Independence Dispensary. Building a successful medical cannabis company in Missouri is a difficult task. Unlike most startup businesses, there are very few resources available in the maze of cannabis regulations. The costs to start a business are high. The application fee for a business license is $6,000 per dispensary and $10,000 per cultivation facility, and that's only to apply. If you are approved for a business, you're expected to pay an annual license fee. Then, costs associated with construction and renovation of facilities aren't tax-deductible. Because marijuana is still a federally illegal drug, you can't receive a business loan from a bank. While many businesses lean on investors from out of state, all cannabis operations in Missouri must show at least 51% ownership from Missouri residents. Missouri began accepting license applications in July of 2019. Nearly 600 separate applications were filed with the state, and licenses were awarded six months later to less than half the applicants. While voters approved a constitutional amendment to legalize the sale of medical cannabis in the state, Missouri legislators set the rules by which the legislation was administered. Only 24 dispensary licenses per congressional voting district were granted for a total of 192 dispensaries in the state. There were also 62 cultivation licenses, 86 manufacturing facility licenses, and 10 testing lab permits granted. Some 853 appeals to reject licenses have been filed at a cost of $2.6 million in legal fees incurred by the state of Missouri. These limitations on the number of licenses granted have been explained as necessary to keep the U.S. Department of Justice from enforcing federal law if Missouri did not cap licenses to avoid oversupply. The DOJ does not want more marijuana produced than is being legally consumed by medical marijuana patients. Oklahoma, which has few restrictions on the number of grow facilities or dispensaries, has seen no federal involvement. However, license restrictions keep prices up, resulting in higher state taxes. In Missouri, marijuana tax is 13.35%, 4% of which funds veterans' programs. The state expects to generate $1.5 million per year in annual licensing fees, and with estimated sales of $200 million for 2021, the industry could raise over $25 million in tax revenues for the state. By 2024, those sales are expected to climb to $650 million, with estimated sales tax revenues of $86 million. Adam Diltz, head grower and COO of OXG LLC, explains day-to-day -day expenses for a cannabis operation can easily run up to a quarter of a million dollars per month in costs. 
If an operation is not buttoned up, any small mistake can result in a product that does not pass state testing, and ultimately hundreds of thousands of dollars in the hole. Ruby compares the state's infant cannabis industry to the gold rush. A few of the miners got very rich, most lost everything, but the real winners of any gold rush are the people who do business with the miners. The guy who sells the shovels and the woman who owns the nearest restaurant made a living off of the aspirations of the miners. The same is true for the cannabis industry. Local Missourians benefited greatly from the construction of dispensaries and the tax revenue already raised. Unfortunately, some of those people who were granted initial licenses will simply not be prepared for the huge capital outlay required to stay in business. With illicit brand cannabis, it's about quality, Ruby says. I hire a lot of really smart people who know how to grow really, really well. I told them, I'm not looking for the cheap product. A lot of people say you can't be a commercial grower and a craft grower at the same time. We're trying to put out a quality product that people love and commercialize it. Ruby continues, The key to this is the right team. You can't skimp on payroll by having team members wear too many hats because it catches up with you on the compliance side of the state rules. You need specific individuals taxed with specific areas to oversee. Dispensaries have general managers, lead bud tenders, bud tenders, security personnel. We have all the right people in place to ensure state compliance, to make us successful, and to allow us to bring the best product possible to our patients. Ruby learned a lot of what he knows today from California-based cannabis company From the Earth. Ruby's Onyx 7 entered into an agreement with From the Earth that lets him use their brand, intellectual property, and educational resources in his retail dispensaries. The partnership gave Onyx 7 a head start on other applicants, with quality, product knowledge, and training standards already set. In 2019, Onyx 7 approached Pedro Zamora, executive director of the Kansas City Hispanic Economic Development Corporation, HEDC, about partnering with their team as they applied for a license for a Southwest Boulevard dispensary location on the west side. The very first day we met, we started talking about how can we incorporate not only economic redevelopment in some of these distressed communities, communities that have been overly enforced by rules and regulations and laws that punish and persecute a lot of folks for minor infractions of marijuana possession, but we also started talking about how can we create programs that are sustainable, that will help folks shift their lives, says Zamora. And that's what I got out of our first conversation, is that this young man is talking about problems that have been plaguing immigrant refugee minority communities. And knowing that cannabis is going to come into these communities one way or another, that became more of a motivator for our organization to try to help him win those applications. Selling the idea of supporting dispensaries was not an easy thing for Zamora. After I cleared this with my wife and mom and sons, then it became a conversation with the HEDC board, and it got a little cold in the room when we had this conversation, Zamora says. Eventually, he was able to convince the board the benefits from working with Ruby's group outweighed any perceived dangers from the association. We looked at communities that have had several funding pushes for drug enforcement, youth programs, DARE, combat. I had to look and think, sure, those were programs that put a round peg in a round hole, but sometimes those are just round pegs and round holes, Zamora says. We had to look at the challenges the local communities had, and a lot of it was that they do have drug dependencies, and they have ailments that can be treated with medical marijuana. We took that into consideration and we researched all the risk factors that come into play when medical marijuana comes into a community. For Ruby, the hardest part of the process was the time spent filling out separate applications for all five dispensaries and the cultivation facility. You don't really sleep. You do a lot of research, he says. The cannabis industry is one of the most heavily regulated industries in the state. After being granted a license, you have one year to finish construction on your facility and have it inspected and approved for opening. Once you receive the official go-ahead, 
you need product ready for harvest. But in order to harvest product, cultivation needs to receive approval from a testing site in order to be sold. While Missouri has many dispensaries open, only 15 of the 60 cultivation facilities have been given permission to begin operations as of March 1st, and only six of those facilities are selling product. This becomes an enormous supply issue for dispensaries, and the reason for the current high prices in Missouri. Matching demand needs while maintaining the quality of the product is only one of the many issues that Onyx 7 has tried to address through their team. Cultivating quality cannabis is much more complicated than merely sticking a seed in some dirt and trying not to forget to water it. It's science. As Onyx 7 COO Diltz manages the massive grow facility near Independence, Missouri, a sprawling property that sits off the road with no signage to identify it. A razor wire fence surrounds the property with cameras prominently displayed on all corners. Inside, a team of 35 employees grow approximately 300 pounds of marijuana per month for sale. Soon, the new, larger building will open, and they will employ up to 200 employees while growing 3,000 pounds per month. Surprisingly, very few plants are grown from seed, and those plants never become sold product. Growers purchase seed only to start new mother plants. Feminized seeds are purchased at high prices, because these genetically engineered seeds are predetermined to grow female plants. Male plants produce hemp, and are useless for medical cannabis. Even the most common strains of cannabis cost $10 or more for a single seed. Extremely rare seeds can cost hundreds of dollars per seed. The plants grown from these seeds live in the Mother Room, a large tented area between the main buildings that allows for natural light. From these original mother plants, clippings are removed, tagged for identification, and put into an earth-like root enhancer designed to encourage root growth. When the original mom plants in the Mother Room grow too big, they are discarded and replaced by younger plants. The newly planted clippings become the plants that are allowed to bloom and are eventually sold. When the roots are fully established, the clippings are replanted and put into one of the grow rooms. Creating a boutique craft cannabis product requires complete control of the environment. These large rooms are lined with two-tiered shelves and are lit by artificial light designed to replicate the best light spectrum for growth. Nothing is left to chance in their growth cycle. Each plant is individually cared for by workers who follow a strict schedule of feeding, watering, and adjusting the plants for light. When the plants reach the proper maturity, they are pulled whole from the soil and hung upside down in the drying room. Here is the real test of a good grower. The quality of the product is determined by proper drying. The length of time that they hang, the humidity, and the temperature of the room are all considered proprietary information and kept as closely guarded trade secrets. The idea is that if you treat each plant the same with the same attention and individual care, it doesn't matter if it is 10 plants or 10,000 plants. You still get the boutique craft quality cannabis that Ruby wants the illicit brand to be known for. Once the drying process is complete, the plants are then trimmed by a team of workers who carefully cut the dried buds from the stem of the original plant. While doing this, they are also providing a quality check on the product. Some buds don't have jar appeal, a reference to the small glass jars that cannabis is packaged in for sale. These smaller misshapen buds, known as popcorn buds, are separated and sent to a manufacturing facility by the illicit team to be ground into pre-rolled joints. Buds considered too light and airy to appeal to patients who smoke are called LARF and are also sent to manufacturing to create the extractions needed for edibles and vapes. The key philosophy taught to these trimmers is that if you wouldn't be happy buying this one-eighth of weed, don't package it and don't sell it. Only the best buds qualify as boutique craft product. This attention to quality and consistency of product is the main attraction of legalized marijuana for both medical patients and recreational users. 
A black market purchase is an easy purchase. If you don't believe me, give your 8th grader $10 and ask them to get you a dime bag. The odds are they know someone like 13-year-old Ruby who has skateboards for sale. The difference is that 26-year-old Ruby knows what he is selling because he has tracked it from seed to sale. Adult Ruby's product has been subjected to rigorous testing to ensure that no illegal pesticides were used and that there is no mold, heavy metals, or other contaminants present in the product. Black market purchase information is based on what the guy you bought it from was told it was by his guy. Educating the general public to this difference is a major educational goal of the Onyx 7 team. As a marijuana mama, Richards puts it, There will always be a black market, but you are choosing to put something in your body, so you had better know what you are putting in your body. You pay a little higher price at a dispensary because the taxes are so high, and things are more expensive to run, but if that product is going inside you, you know that product is what it says it is on the package. There is still a lot to learn about the effects of medical cannabis. Due to it still being illegal at a federal level, research isn't easy to conduct, but ultimately Americans hold cannabis to a higher standard of safety than other products. We demand that cannabis be safe when other products also can be harmful when overindulged in. Alcohol can ruin your liver, computer screens can damage your eyes, and bike seats can cause testicular cancer. Every commercial for prescription drugs carries a laundry list of potential harmful side effects, but we are okay with those products as long as they help us sleep, reduce our anxiety, and cure our impotence. But as we argue these opposing views, we lose sight of one important group, the patients who feel that cannabis helps their medical conditions. When you start talking to people who use cannabis for medical purposes, you can't deny that it has helped them in some kind of way, says Ruby. In the beginning, I smoked cannabis recreationally. I thought, medical is just a way to get it legal for recreational use. Then I started meeting these patients and completely flipped my philosophy after meeting the first one. For those people who work in the medical cannabis industry, it is always about that first one, the one person they personally know who benefited from medical cannabis at a time of great need in their lives. For Zamora, it was his brother's cancer diagnosis, a military vet who worked for years on a job that required drug testing. He had no adult experience with marijuana until he contracted an especially painful form of cancer. The only thing that helped was the marijuana suggested by his doctor. It changed Zamora's thinking on the drug. Stories like Zamora are a common theme among the Onyx 7 team. They each have stories of a friend, family member, or acquaintance that changed their view on the medical effects of cannabis. Diltz tells of a childhood friend who went from high school football star to homeless opioid addict. After multiple failures in rehab, he ended up in a facility that used cannabis as a crutch to combat the urges of his addiction. He's been clean ever since, and now manages multiple grow facilities across several states. As Ruby's mother Richmond points out, Unless you're in that person's situation, you don't know what they go through on a day-to-day -day basis just to get up out of bed. So for them to legally get medical cannabis is the best thing we can do for someone. Some 30 years ago, during the worst of the AIDS epidemic, I watched a good friend slowly deteriorate from the disease. Nausea and lack of appetite made eating very difficult during the last month of his life. He asked me to find him marijuana, and we made a hot tea from it so that he could have a cup before every meal. Whether it was from a scientific reason or a placebo effect, it helped. That illegal drug made his last month of life easier. It was not fair or right that he was forced to break the law to get a small bit of comfort. It was not fair or right that I risked criminal charges to help a dying friend find peace. That's the real reason that the work Ruby and his team do is important. Their services help others survive and thrive. That's what the community deserves. Worlds of Fun is now accepting applications for all positions, including ride operators, lifeguards, cashiers, cooks, and bartenders. All positions come with competitive pay, paid training, and best of all, 
free admission. That's right. You can go to work for fun whenever you want. <laughs> Leadership positions are available. Working at Worlds of Fun means you will receive worlds of friends, a worlds of flexibility, and worlds of experience. Literally, it is worlds of fun. Get a head start now on your worlds of opportunity. Apply at worldsoffun.jobs or text FUN FUN to 97211. Uh, I hope that if you get a job at Worlds or Oceans of Fun, that I will see you there this summer. Uh, please let me know if you found this opportunity through this because, uh, boy, if uh, local journalism gets any less funded, I might be joining you out there. We will have fun uh, splish splashing each other together. Uh, <laughs> so uh, anyway, jobs are available for summer stuff. It sounds pretty exciting. I, I, I would like working outside better than I like working inside and being mad at everything all day anyway. So I am already jealous of you. Anyway, it is time, ladies and gentlemen, once again, as you love it, Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick's Basic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Next week, we're sharing the latest single from Lawrence rapper Q in advance of his new album, entitled Gospel. So it felt like a good time to share Keith Wright's last single, Ain't Going Back, featuring Joel Liage. Liage kicks the song off and sings the hook. But when Q drops his verses, the ceiling damn near comes off KU's Danforth Chapel, where the video, featured in a recent Cinelocal video roundup, was shot. Those who know Q's journey might shed a tear or two when he raps, I'm the man now, cracks a smile, and busts a move. It's a revival of joyous proportions, and you do well to put this one on repeat. Keep an eye on the pitch's socials on Tuesday for the drop of Q's latest, and in the meantime, here's Ain't Going Back. You discover yourself to keep discovering yourself. You uncover yourself to reveal yourself. Because there's no one else. Amen, amen. Took a minute for you to 
to show me what was next Now I'm with my Jordan Kobe and I pray for you the best And destined for the greatness and I'm made for what's next I got a fresh fade and I'm chilling now Drinking champagne and I hit the ceilings while Blase Fontaine, partisan, take it down, do my damn day I'm the man, I'm I just the man had to now up. I ain't never going back Put my past in the dust I ain't never going back Today's podcast is sponsored by Authentic Kansas City, which hosts weekly safe meetups on Saturday evenings so you can make meaningful connections. Authentic Relating is a practice described as a fast track to friendship. It's a collection of these sort of games that cultivate a connection in a meaningful way between you and a stranger. And on a practical level, it's just a gathering of great people and fun activities built to deepen friendships. They gather uh, Saturday evenings at 530 in Loose Park for the Authentic Relating Game Nights. Uh, they believe in creating a safe space to connect, but they also uh, believe that, uh, you know, keep it spaced out. But let's also overcome the crazy isolation that we've been through. Let's uh, let's do anything we can to uh, like more people and be less depressed. Wholly on board with what they're doing. Uh, pre-registration is required to take part. So uh, visit them at AuthenticKansasCity.com or Facebook at AuthenticKCMO. Authentic Kansas City, a safe space to connect in real life. And that brings us to today's interview. Uh, Remy here is just too young to be somebody that I've profiled this many times. Uh, he's been a musician that has lived somehow 18 different lifetimes in less than 24 years. Uh, and an incredibly talented artist who uh, came up doing a lot of music and then moved into scoring films and has lately uh, been just going ahead and making his own films. Uh, and uh, here's here's a little interview we did about all the stuff that he's up to. Check out the website to see links to all of this stuff. Uh, here's my interview with Remy. Welcome to the show. Would you please introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, my name is Remy Sterk, and I'm a creator. I, for the entirety of 2021, I've been making short films about personal stories. The best way I can describe it is, think old school MTV, just music and visuals. You're too young to know old school MTV. Where is that coming from? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my cousin, uh, my family. Yes, I'm <laughs> too young to know old school MTV. But yeah, no, my family. And then, of course, just Google search. <laughs> uh, so how old are you? When did you get started in, in filmmaking? <laughs> I am 22. And I really got started in filmmaking December 2020. So not that long ago, but you've been, you've been churning out a lot of work in that time. Like, um, what, what has been your process here? <laughs> so I make one short film a month. They're about two and a half, three minutes long. Um, so I usually have, I write out my storyboard and then a lot of the time when I start shooting, it changes just because I'm now seeing it in a different way. Um, so I shoot it. I edit it and then I score it myself as well. Right, uh, because what we've worked on with you before and covered is is your work as a composer, uh, which has certainly gone on longer than the last couple of months. Do you want to talk about your your history in music? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have been, I want to say this summer, this upcoming summer will be about 16 years that I've been playing music. 16 I out of 22, on... yeah. <laughs> 
16 out of 22. <laughs> so I started on drums and guitar and got into singer-songwriter singer songwriter type stuff maybe around 13, 12 or 13. And What kind of style were you into back then? <laughs> I'd say most likely kind of like this folk, folky blues because um, like the, the the journey of your life so far has taken you through a lot of places where you've had a lot of different influences for such a you know for being 22 you seem to have lived a couple of lives already yeah i i definitely i've switched genres a lot we went from folk to not fully into country but definitely country influences into pop into rock into funk into blues to heavier metal so a little bit of everything to now, I don't even know what I would call my style, just me. Is it, is it, was it ever odd in like the Midwest to be a, a person of color in like middle school or high school dabbling in country music and metal uh, genres notorious for not being that welcoming of outsiders? Oh yeah, it was definitely, you could see it in the people's face when I, when I say like, oh, what type of music do you play? And I would say like, uh, you know, like folk country stuff and it's kind of like they're taken aback for a minute um because they're of course thinking of something else well what is it that they're thinking of you think i mean a lot of people think either i rap or i'm doing something hip-hop related or making beats which i do all that stuff just that's not my main thing i i thought you meant that uh they were thinking something else in that way where they're like isn't country music just racism and white people what what songs could you possibly write? Do you own a truck? <laughs> <laughs> yes, do you own a truck? Um, it's yeah, it's definitely like it was never that direct, but it was also it was always the feeling of like, yeah, why are you doing that? What is what's in it for you? Um, I mean, I I can imagine the situation there because I know the face I make around around white rappers where I'm like, is this really where your voice is? Is this your form of storytelling? <laughs> exactly yes so you got into the singer songwriter stuff and then a lot of the work that you've been doing more recently has been soundtrack uh film scoring based how did you get into that what kind of scene is there out here like where do you find opportunities to do that and and what have those collaborations been like <laughs> um and well how i got started we have a family friend who's he owns a studio in new york and they do a lot of the music for HBO and Showtime, and then they take on independent projects. And so I'd say going on about five, six years now, I've been able to intern um, during the summer for him. And it was not so much the, the instrumentation, like the or orchestral stuff that drew me in the first time. It was, I've always been drawn to storytelling, and this was just a different way to tell a story. Um, and then lately I've just gotten into actually preferring the sound of strings and brass and all of that. Um, as, in terms of like a market here in the Midwest, I personally have not found a place where I'm getting work to be financially stable. Um, that's sort of where the filmmaking came in of one, I want to be my own boss Two, I just want to work three. I have all these ideas and why am I waiting around for someone else when I could just go out and do it? Were you thankful to be in a position where you'd moved from like a, 
from like a band situation to more of a solo composer thing uh, before we had to spend a year inside. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I mean, it's different. It's psychologically different, but no, I've been working on my own and doing my own solo thing for seven, eight years now. So when you say that the films that you're making now are old school MTV, what do you mean by that? Where it's, they're, they're, they walk the line between short film and music video. Gotcha. Where there's a clear story, um, but it's very like art driven. So there's a lot of different meanings to it for a lot of different people. No dialogue, just really music and this visual story where you can watch the film without the music and have a story, or you can listen to the music without the film and still have a story. What kind of uh, crew have you been working with? I, I assume a very small number of people that make these. So I do everything by myself. I shoot it on my phone. I edit it myself. Um, so yeah, I'm doing everything. What do you got planned next uh, for when things are are open? Do you, you plan to expand this into doing shoots with full crews? Do you want to stay as just this solo creator i mean i of course i love being my own boss and i love having that full creative control um it would be nice to to branch out and kind of bounce ideas off of other people work with other people but right now they're all of these stories are so close and so personal to me that i want to have full control over them i want to tell it the way i want to tell it but I don't know. I, I really can't say for anything in the future right now. I think that's the case with a lot of things. Um, but yeah, it would be nice to work with other people. I just have to, I, I have it so clear in my head that I want to be the first person to do it. Well, I always like talking to you because uh, you're such a goddamned overachiever for 22. <laughs> and uh, you make me upset to hear about just how much you've accomplished already. And I have not. Um, <laughs> I got one final question for you today. Uh, what's the best movie soundtrack you heard last year? Last year, I, oddly enough, being or getting into film, I did not watch a lot of movies. I just, something about the 2020 narrative and the the craziness of 2020, I just wasn't in a place where I could put myself in another character's shoes where I like, I could watch a movie, but I just couldn't connect to it because of everything else going in the, on in the world. I was like, that's too much. It's overstimulating to be a character in a movie where like, it doesn't have to be the world is ending in the movie. It could be something as simple as like a love story, but it was just, I need to focus on what's in front of me and what I can control. So there was a lot of us watching stuff from, from before this year, including like TV shows from the nineties and stuff where whenever characters would hug or high five, we would just be like, no, don't do that. That's not what we're doing as a society. Oh, you're going to get sick. It's like, no, this was made 20 years ago. I, I don't know why. Yeah. Can't really get into anything all the way when, uh, when the whole world is different. Anyway, I'll let you get back to your, to your day. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Yeah. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that has been the Streetwise podcast from The Pitch in Kansas City. I uh, really hope you guys enjoyed. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe. Please comment to let us know how much you're enjoying the show, but only if you're enjoying the show. And if not, shut the fuck up. Um, <laughs> having a great time doing this show with you. Uh, We've been doing such incredible work at The Pitch. Please check out thepitchkc.com for new articles, uh, stories each and every day. We have done a lot of groundbreaking stuff in the last few weeks. We have been working so insanely hard 
this week and I am so tired and I just want to nap uh, forever. Um, we are going to keep going. Uh, if you ever feel like throwing us a couple of bucks, hop on over to pitchkc.com. Uh, check something in there. Thank you guys so much for reading. So thank you for listening. Pitch in and we'll make it. This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.